Detroit and the world. Welcome to a special election wraparound episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the Lower East Side here in the city, powered by the East Side Community Network and sponsored by none other than the Ford Foundation. Now a content partner to the newbridgedetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Today, we are happy to welcome independent consultant and creative and jack of all trades, Camille Johnson, who is Donna's Daughter, her oldest daughter, or second oldest. Hey, Camille. Uh, hey. <laughs> oldest, and the other unofficial co-host of Authentically Detroit, Kat Stafford, who also serves as the National Race and Ethnicity Reporter for the Associated Press. Camille and Kat, welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thank uh-huh. you. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you both uh, with us. Camille, I can't believe you haven't been on yet. So this, this will be fun. I know. I haven't done a podcast in so long. It's nice to be back. Let's brush off some of those old chops. There's certainly a lot going on in the world, but as always, let's just check in. Uh, Kat, how are you? Just how are you doing? (laughs) You see my face? (laughs) I'm so tired. I've been working so many days straight covering the election and uh, it's funny, a lot of people think that once it's done, political reporters, we could kind of like chill out. No, not with this election. So full steam ahead. Yeah, I, I, I know the feeling. Camille, how you doing? Uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm in the in-between. It's like, okay, yay, now we know, but also like because we live in this age of information, you're just still learning about so much so many terrible things and seeing so much ridiculousness that it's still like tiring so i'm like better than i was last week (laughs) around this time last week i know right a week ago today it was election day donna how are you good to see you good to see you too you know when i saw cat cat said that she had not been sleeping very much and i know that's because of all the work that she's been doing covering this election but I'm on the other side. I feel like it is one big, long reality TV show and everybody's in it pulling for a side and it's like, oh no, they did this. And so from my perspective, I don't even watch television news or I should say I did not watch television news. Now I can't stop. It's addicting. What's happening now? Has the polls changed 0.01%? And, um, and then also trying to figure out what everybody is thinking and doing and trying to stay ahead of the game. And I realized that Um, Some of that is, at least for me, not healthy because I really cannot control what happens next. I've done my part by voting and encouraging people to vote. And now we just have to let things play out and have faith, I think, in um, what comes next. What about you, Orlando? I'm tired. I'm where Kat is. We worked, um, Bridget Trace staff worked around the clock uh, last week. We were taking turns and shifts, spending all day and night um, at TCF Center. And we, of course, were there when the uh, disruption, (laughs) the disruption of democracy, I call it, happened um, at TCF Center. And it was actually something (laughs) like to behold. It was actually traumatic 
and you know being charged with trying to put words to that experience while not sleeping <laughs> has been uh, a difficult <laughs> a difficult task uh, election day I was running around all over the place I, I think I visited about 12 different polling locations here in the city interviewed dozens of people and much like cat uh, we're still working almost around the clock little to no sleep so but I am here I'm energized I had some Doritos and was playing Luther Vandross before this started so I'm good and ready to go <laughs> <laughs> uh, but nothing makes you feel better more than Luther Vandross. Luther makes the world just all right. <laughs> um, I was listening to Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, I'm telling you, I was just like, keep your head to the sky, you know, and um, devotion. Those songs just had me and my feelings. I was like, yes, keep your head to the spot, God. You know, and that, that helps. And if I gives you a spiritual experience, man, yeah. I love them so much. Hey, y'all, it's time for Fresh Off the Press, news that we are thinking about. If you have pieces that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. Donna, Fresh Off the Press. Uh, well, this one's coming from the Detroit Free Press. Detroit lawsuit alleges more misconduct in elections process, seeking to delay certification. Uh, Dave Boucher and Paul Egan, um, this was filed yesterday um, at 6.22 p.m. And um, I love the, um, the picture they have of a man wearing a full face mask being removed by police at the TCF Center in Detroit because it just speaks to the outrageousness and the entitlement of um, the people who thought they could stop this election do and say anything. Um, and so they've, um, the lawsuit seeks a judge's order blocking certification of election results, um, citing a range of allegations from Republican poll watchers and a city of Detroit election worker. I have to be honest with you, her name or his name is Jesse something or other. I looked him up on all the socials trying to figure out who this Jesse Jacob um, is identified as a Detroit series city of Detroit employee who says before election day, election workers at a Detroit satellite center were repeatedly coached voters telling them to vote for Biden and other Democrats. Um, first of all, Jesse Jacob, literally nobody has to coach voters in Detroit to vote for Biden and other Democrats, okay? That is a given, that is a historical fact. It's so ridiculous, it's so insulting and um, you know, then there's another one who said that he remained late at night as bowls are processed. He thought tens of thousands of ballots were brought into the center for counting. All of the ballots he watched being counted were for Biden. Again, shocker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he only commented on ballots he deserved, observed. So, I mean, these are on the one hand frivolous lawsuits and on the other hand, they are giving some ridiculous Republicans aid and comfort that this result is going to be um, challenged that somehow in the city of Detroit, and it's interesting they chose Detroit, like if I was going to try to challenge the results, I would not come to the city of Detroit, which votes 90% Democrat every time and say, wait a minute, these people would have voted elsewhere. Um, but they chose Detroit. And um, the president actually said that Detroit has historical corruption in our 
voting process. And this is not even, um, you know, covert racism. This is just overt racism and it's ridiculous. So um, that's my story. Yeah, and so uh, what's interesting is the same lawyer who uh, defended uh, the, the, the barber in Owasso, Michigan, who refused to uh, close his shop from the uh, shutdown is the same lawyer that has filed this suit in Wayne County to stop the vote certification process just for a little education. While the media can call a, uh, can project the winner of an election based on the electoral votes and the count that's going on in the nation, there's still an entire process that happens after that adjudication and certification and things like that. And so he's filed suit against uh, the city of Detroit, the election commission, Janice Winfrey, Kathy Garrett, Wayne County Board of Canvassers to stop the certification of the votes in Wayne County. But what is crazy to me is that Biden's winning margin is way too large for any of this to really uh, go far. And so it, it, it astonishes me the length of which racists I'm, that's what I'm going to call it, people will go to retain power. One of the things that I know is power never likes to give up power and a Biden wing gives up that power. And so what we saw at TCF last week, <laughs> what we're seeing in all of these frivolous, unfounded lawsuits is, is, is disheartening, it's racist, and it's traumatizing to folks. I don't think I've ever seen in my lifetime uh, the, the disruption to democracy and counting votes uh, in the actual central board counting room ever in this city, or at least in my lifetime, I've never experienced anything like that. And they were in the room shouting, stop the vote. Kat, were you in TCF that night? I wasn't, I wasn't there, but I, I, I will say this. For me, it's disturbing because like, so before, you know, when I was at the Free Press, I'm focused on the city, right? Just Detroit. But now I'm looking at Black cities across the country. And what was happening in Detroit I'm seeing it play out in places like Philly. I'm seeing them challenge votes in Georgia, right? And it's, we cannot deny the, the role that race plays in it. It's, it's not a coincidence that they are intentionally targeting places like Detroit, Philly, and, and beyond that have these majority black populations, right? And we need to be clear about that. And what's so concerning for me, it's not a matter of, you know, them being able to actually toss out these votes, you know, get this this race reversed. We know Biden's going to be the next president of the United States, but what it does is plant those seeds and gives these conspiracy theorists uh, a, a motive of of credence, right? And and it allows them to challenge these black cities. I mean, it it was so disturbing to watch a lot of these older black women who we know are our matriarchs, who we know are our community pillars, counting these votes doing what they should be allowed to do within the role of democracy, right? And having these, let's be blunt, white people coming into the city from the suburbs and shouting at them. It, you know, I was talking to my was dad dark. about it. it was so yeah, he, he's <laughs> like, it just took him back to the 60s, you know, and, and the riots and, and the, uh, the uprisings and just like being in that era again, it's just deeply disturbing to see. Right. 
Orlando wanted me to call people. He's texting me. He was like, who can we call to get down here? We need some some black men to show up. I was like, I don't know Orlando. Listen, so I was I was on 10. Like I was so mad. I was fuming, right? And so like the journalist in me is like, okay, I gotta cover this and I gotta make sure I get the story right. But the East Side Mac and Manistique in me is like, yo, who can we call and get out here you know right what? now to and, handle these idiots? And you know what? I had the nurture make a couple um inquiries right and that's when i learned that the, the deputy chief of the police department was on his way down and that was you know um and it, what what scared me too is i think what they're trying to do is provoke they believe that if they do that they can provoke something in us that will then lead to something else and so um i just can't even um verbalize my gratitude to the people who were being treated that way and who soldiered on and did what was necessary and did not allow themselves to be provoked because you know when people get in your face like that they're especially white people you know they're trying to get they they had an intention but i, I also have a question because i I'm not, i don't haven't watched all of the new shows so i probably missed it um you talk about the absolute insult to our city and i'm just missing where the mayor of detroit just came out in strong defense of the black people who voted and the black women who stood uh, who held it down at TCF. So um, where, where was he on this? Because I, I I think I missed that in the news. I missed that too. I mean, I don't think that he'll say anything until he sees how this is going to play out, honestly. I'm, I don't think I'm a cynic. I think I'm a realist. But I think that Mike Duggan is nothing if not pragmatic. And it would not be pragmatic for him to come out and say that, especially when the Trump administration and just the GOP in general has a habit of personally and specifically targeting specific politicians. I mean, like they're doing it to their own party. Last week, Ronna McDaniel also went on Fox News and said that the city clerk in Rochester Hills um, was fraudulent, that their election was fake, that they cheated, that they added in fake votes and fake ballots. And then you had all types of people from Oakland County GOP groups coming forth and taking up for her. And so I just think that they have a habit of doing that and Mike Duggan doesn't want to be in that line of fire. Uh, I missed it as well. I was also looking for the chief of police, James Craig, to come out <laughs> and talk about outside agitators coming into our city, disrupting our city. I didn't hear it. And I couldn't get an interview with Deputy Chief or Assistant Chief Todd Bettison, who was on the scene at TCF either. I'm just saying. But didn't he say, didn't, didn't um, Trump's friend Craig say that, um, or I mean, he's just a fan of Craig, but didn't he say that, um, that Black Lives Matter was trying to destroy democracy and they were anti-democracy? Didn't he come out and say something like that not too long ago? He well, not only it on Fox News. Uh, yeah, but not it. only did he say that, but last week he did make a statement actually after because in addition to all the voter suppression that happened in terms of the count, you also have all of these white militias and white supremacists that are organizing rallies in these black cities where they're trying to say that the votes are fraudulent. And they organized the rally last Thursday. Everyone was like, well, of course Detroit police is going to be out here, right? Since they're out here protesting and doing things that would seem to be disturbing the peace, correct? And he made a statement and said, no, they were out there, but they're not going to stop something because they 
respect people's First Amendment rights. And the difference between this and the Black Lives Matter is that Black Lives Matter wants to attack police and that if they had it just been peaceful and not violent, there wouldn't have been an issue. But that they protect everyone as long as they are, you know, keeping it cool and keeping it peaceful. And that's why they didn't do anything. Which is just Can I just say that the other thing that was funny to me around these uh, these protests by uh, these uh, the I call them, we call them the white mob at Bridge Detroit um, is that they were protesting at the TCF Center. Uh, election officials left the TCF Center late, <laughs> literally late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning, and there was no more activity happening at TCF. And so they kept going and organizing these protests at TCF. And it's like, what, what is wrong with y'all? But you know, the other thing that, that Craig said, and I don't want this to go by without a comment, he said that the other groups had come to protest the protesters. He said they were trying to, and I, these are not quotes, but it's almost this, that they were trying to agitate the people who had been literally trying to disrupt the vote. He said they were trying to agitate that, but we didn't let that happen. We put that down. So, you know, I think it would have been great to hear our leaders in the city of Detroit talking about how they stood up and how they put down this protest that was targeting predominantly from what I read, I wasn't there, but the people I know, predominantly black women who were counting the votes and really um, just doing um, the hero's job of you know carrying out democracy. So I think it would have been great to hear that. And the fact that it didn't is not something I'm going to forget for a long time because that was an assault on our city and an attack on our reputation. Um, so that said, Orlando, I know you have a story also yeah, uh, I think this will be familiar to Kat. This is proof Biden's win reveals power of Black voters. That's Kat Stafford, Aaron Morrison, and Angelique Exodus are reporting for the Associated Press. And so uh, the AP did, I think, a magnificent job in uh, putting putting a button on the power of the Black vote in America. In fact, the lead says power, respect, uh, finally, and uh, what what we found, what 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 the AP found, and what I was, you know, encouraged by, is that Black voters turned out in droves even more than they did in 2016 for Hillary Clinton to push uh, Vice President Joe Biden, now President-elect Joe Biden, uh, over the edge and turn a traditionally red state blue, which has uh, the power and potential to really change uh, electoral politics in America um, as we know it. And what the article also did that I love is it gave a nod to the activism and organizing community. And I want to do the same thing while we're talking about the story. I want to give a big, huge shout out to Brandon Snyder and the entire staff at Detroit Action, as well as other organizations in the city who were really on the ground doing the work. Most of the people that I interviewed on election day were millennials and were first time voters. The, I don't know the percentage of folks, first time voters um, in Detroit uh, that voted in this election, but just anecdotally, uh, firsthand data, it was, it was pretty high. The other 
The other reason the AP cited, and Kat, I'm going to let you expound on this, is Black voters were really just sick and tired of Donald Trump's racist uh, rhetoric. Uh, Donna said it earlier that it's not even covert anymore. It's just out and in the open, uh, <laughs> stand back, stand down, you know what I mean? Uh, and uh, the numbers which uh, were really interesting to me is the black vote makes up 11% of the voter electorate in America and nine in 10 of uh, out of nine and 10 black people who are registered to vote supported Vice President Joe Biden. That's not surprising. But one of the things that I would like some new source to dig into is like, who are these black people? We have 5,000 more uh, votes in Detroit for Donald Trump than we did in 2016 this election, one in 10. So that means one out of the 10 is voting either uh, third party or for Donald Trump. Who are these people? Kat? Your thoughts on this? You just said a lot there. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I've seen a lot of folks say that they were surprised by the, the turnout of Black folks, and I don't understand why, because I feel like if you have your ear to the ground, you would have seen all of these folks trying to mobilize people, mobilize first-time voters, mobilize folks that haven't voted in, in years, and I think what we saw was the result of that hard work. And I think that all of that work lies on the ground level with these grassroots orgs. So we thought it was really important to kind of touch on that. But um, you you raise a, a good point about the, the Trump supporters that do exist. And that is something that I'm thinking about a lot, because a lot of my reporting has shown that Black folks are tired of Trump. They're tired of the rhetoric. But beyond that, remember, I mean, Detroit has been hit so hard by this pandemic, both in death, both in folks losing their jobs. And I think people saw this as an opportunity to potentially take this, the, the country in a different direction, right? So, but I do think what we can't do is ignore the folks that voted for Trump or the people that still stayed home. And I think in the city, there are a lot of people that still feel like regardless of if it's Biden or Trump in the White House, my, my personal predicament is not going to change. I'm still impoverished my children are still struggling in school and I'm still struggling to put food on the table. So I think that the the, the next thing for the Democratic Party will be to figure out how do you mobilize those folks and, and show them that you're not just trying to get their vote, but you're gonna actually do something for them. I mean, um, Trump has a pimp mentality and there's some pimps in the hood. So um, there's no question to me that there's some natural affinity between certain people and Trump. <laughs> Wait. Um, Trying to keep a poker face. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I wasn't ready. <laughs> I'm like, did I hear that right? Because Camille didn't have a reaction, and I saw Cat. I'm like, wait, did she just say? I'm used to it. <laughs> I'm ran. <laughs> I'm sorry for interrupting you, Donna. Please continue. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So I think there's that. I think also we have to acknowledge that Detroit is not as black as it used to be. And there are new Detroiters who are moving here who do not have. So Detroit does not automatically correlate with black. Not saying that all of the new voters are not black, because I know that there are black people who did vote for Trump. But I think that we have to look at Detroit differently when we look at the concentration that's happening downtown. In fact, we're losing more black people in Detroit and getting more white people in Detroit. If you look at population, those who say they live here, because I know some of them still aren't acknowledging this as their residents. 
Um, but I, I want to swing this to Camille because one of the questions that has been raised is what is the role of the grassroots and who is the grassroots to get out there, mobilize the votes? Um, was it the DNC or were there other types of people out there in the streets, in the hood, or was it both? Um, from what I see and from what I've seen, a lot of the grassroots has been people that are like, you know, I mean, organizers like Brandon Snyder that are from organizations that don't have a ton of funding, that don't have a ton of corporate support, that are really scrappy, that have strong grassroots community engagement, you know, strategies. And I think that what made that most clear is like, I, so I've been following this on Twitter because, you know, so much has happened in this news week that it's hard to keep everything straight. But there was, you know, a blind item that came out about some meeting that happened with the DNC leadership and Nancy Pelosi after it was confirmed that she had been reelected and that she was running for speaker again, where she said that the people on the left of the party needed to make sure that they got their stuff together and basically, you know, stop trying to push the party more left and more progressive because if they kept doing that, they would lose seats and lose elections, which is insane because the people that are doing the grass work, grassroots work on the ground and turning out new voters, turning out poor and working class people, turning out black voters, turning out brown voters, turning out voters that feel disaffected and that feel as though neither party cares about them, are progressives who have a vision for the future, are people who are coming up with actual strategies and plans. And what they're doing is an effective job of communicating why it is important to vote white right now and ways that we can hold them accountable. And I think that that's why like right now, I don't necessarily feel like completely happy about the results of the election because there's so much more to be done. And I feel like as long as the DNC and establishment Democrats and democratic organizations spend their own, spend their own money and time doing things like trying to minimize progressive voices, minimize you know the black vote. Like just last week after we found out that black people and black women specifically are the votes that gave Biden the win, John Kasich and other white Dems are on CNN and MSNBC lamenting the fact that the Democratic Party has lost conservative voters and that they can't get more working class voters because the Democratic Party as an establishment and as a business is more concerned with getting back voters that they're not going to get back and they don't want to deal with anti-racism. They want to pretend as though the issue is that we're not speaking to the hearts and minds of people. No, their hearts and minds are racist. They're voting for a racist because they like his policies. They're not confused. They're not undereducated. They're not doing any of that. But the Democratic Party has spent their money trying to run candidates against progressives in seats that they don't want to be there. They spent millions of dollars running someone against AOC. They spent millions of dollars supporting campaigns against Lauren Underwood, against Rashida Tlaib, against Ilhan Omar. They're spending their time and their resources trying to minimize progressive voices while also demanding the votes of the people that progressives are speaking to. And then insulting them when they say, yes, I'm voting for Biden, but I'm not excited about it because you all act like you don't care. And so I think that's, aside from everything else, like having a moron in the White House that clearly doesn't wanna leave um, and figuring out how to actually get him out of there, we still have to figure out how to get this party to actually show that they care and that at some point, they're willing to evolve with the base of voters that they have versus fighting over 
I don't know, the racist base that the Republicans have, it, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> I think that's, can I say something to that? I think Camille made so many ex excellent points right there. And I think that it's important to, to note, put a big asterisk by the fact that more than 70 million people voted for Donald Trump. And what does that say about the country that so many people, specifically white men and white women, right, that they still voted for Trump, regardless of all of the racist rhetoric that we've seen come out of the White House, all of his policies, they still went to that ballot box and voted for Donald Trump. And I uh, interviewed uh, former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, who, uh, you know, she's a very progressive uh, person. And she was saying, look, white liberals need to look in the mirror and recognize the racism that exists within this own within their own party. It's not just Donald Trump. Donald Trump is just one person. There are millions of people that need to reckon with the fact that systemic racism still exists in this country. And this country has never had a truth and reconciliation over that. And so until we discuss that in a robust way and actually have policies in place to you know, destroy racism, it's still going to be an issue. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. This, um, as the old person in the room, that, um, that, and, and thank you, um, Camille and Kat, I think that was both of you. I agree hundred percent, but I think that there's a generational thing here, right? I think that there are black people who are my age and older who really believe that the best way to change America is to minimize our expectations. So like Black Lives Matter, we don't necessarily want to upset the apple cart because we're not sure that the apple cart will hold us if we upset it too much. And I think also there are people who believe they won civil rights in 1968. And so they're trying to figure out what happened to that victory and get back to that victory in 1968. Although if you look back in 1968, things had not been won. We had victories, but there are many things that have continued since then um, unaddressed. And I think one of them is classism. Another one of them is this whole respectability framework. And then we moved into this liberal, neoliberal space where everybody's just trying to get rich and wealth is the way to equality and power. And so I feel like there's a generation that has come behind us that's challenging all of that and really shaking up not just the core of white political thought, but also a lot of Black political thought is much more conservative than where uh, I see a lot of young progressives. I mean, yeah, I, I'll speak to that and I'll yield to Camille and Kat. I think that, uh, you know, we had a lot of millennial and Z uh, criticism of uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris and President-elect Joe Biden, particularly on their tough stances on crime, the crime bill in the 90s, and uh, Vice President-elect Harris's prosecutorial uh, discretion, right? And one of the things that, you know, I remember and that I talked to folks about was our parents, <laughs> our people in our family were happy about those bills. They were happy about uh, though in the 90s, they were happy about those stiff penalties because a lot of us were uh, victimized by, um, uh, you know, a violent wave of crime um, in the 90s. But I also think that the uh, getting by just to get by just does not sit well uh, with this generation. We, I think the millennials and the Zers want 
explicitness beyond the word service. And so I know now that the Democratic Party is at least willing to give lip service to Black women and Black voters in America. Vice President, I'm, I, I'm used to calling him Vice President. President-elect uh, Joe Biden uh, talked about the African-American community turning up, turning out for him one more time. And they've always been there for him. And Kamala Harris also acknowledged uh, Black women. And that's great, right? It's great to get a thank you. It's great uh, that they put that on a national stage. But people like Camille and people like my friend Evan Doherty are like, OK, we still working. What's next? What do you owe us beyond this, this loud and resounding thank you uh, to move our community forward and to explicitly policy and legislate eradication of racism and racist policies. And mm-hmm. people aren't, I don't think people, uh, at least in some of the folks in my circle are buying that that will actually happen with a more uh, central democratic president and uh, vice president. Yeah, so I just wanna put a pin in something and um, just encourage us to research how black people really felt when the crime bill was passed. It was extremely controversial and the Congressional Black Caucus and many people warned, this is going to happen as a result of this vote. Did many of them go ahead and vote for it? Yes, because there was a lot tied up in that legislation and you didn't necessarily have the same accountability that you needed for some of those politicians. Did you have a more conservative church sector that also supported it? Yes. But I think that if you really disentangle where people were, it was not like black people were saying this. And the the reality is I'm glad that Joe Biden won, but you cannot make Joe Biden was just following the times. Joe Biden was a anti-crime senator who prided himself on being anti-crime from the 1970s until that crime guilt bill got, got passed. In fact, he used to say that if you look at any crime legislation that has been passed In the past 10 or 15 years, my name is on it. And so I'm happy that he seems to have a change of heart, but you cannot make us all collectively responsible for his erroneous legislative um, tactics. He did that. He co-sponsored these bills with Strom Thurmond. He co-sponsored bills with people nobody wants to talk to. Do I have a forgiving heart? And do I want to believe he's going somewhere else? Yes. But I also believe that an organized electorate can also stand and to hold him accountable for every single promise he has made during this campaign season. And it is up to people like um, the, the younger generation and people like me in support of that to really create accountability and a pathway forward. I want to bring you in on this, Camille. Go ahead. Um. You know, I think a lot of times we talk about how it shouldn't shock people that white women vote with white men or are invested in racism because so much of what they have is invested in the system. Um, and we talk about it when we talk about black and right? Like a lot of it is invest- they're invested in the system, but so like I think that all of us in some way are invested in the system and. I was having a conversation about reparations with a group of people and someone asked like, what would you be willing to give up so that everyone could have reparations? Like if the government was like, all right, bet. Everyone can have reparations, but you know, everybody's gonna have to give something up. So figure out what that is and bada boom, we'll work it out. And no one could answer that question because 
for so many black people, just like white women and white men, we get something out of the system as well because it's extractive, but it also rewards people for doing what you're supposed to do. And so am I willing to give up my access? Am I willing to give up my resources? Am I willing to give up my power in order to fight and do something that might break the apple cart? Because the only real way to change the a new system and that means all of these things that you've worked for all of these things that you spent your life buying into and putting money into that gumball machine you're not going to get a return on that you're going to lose all of those things which is funny because i saw something yesterday that talked about how like it was supposed to be i think encouraging for people that feel like bleh right now like me i mean it was like you know true revolutionaries understand that you're gonna do all this work fighting to change something and break a system and create something new that you're gonna be dead and gone before that happens. But every single thing that you do leads up to that. And so I feel like sometimes people need to like maybe manage their fears before they stop themselves from actually becoming more progressive because we're not gonna like topple Rome in a day, um, but also be willing to give something up. like. No one wants to be living like the Hunger Games, obviously. You don't want to be living your worst dystopian film nightmare, but I think if we want better for everyone, we have to be willing to sacrifice something. And that's why we have the issues we have in our government now. Like we have politicians that even if they started out and they really cared, they've gotten power and they've gotten rich and they've gotten access to things that they don't want to lose. And the only way to keep those things is to make decisions and do things that are, go against the best interests of the vast majority of us. And gotta start holding people accountable for that. And I don't really know what the mechanism is right now. Um, yeah, what I got. Go ahead, Kat. I say something. Um, you know, when I was talking to um, Martin Luther King III, he, I asked him if he thought that his father's dream had been realized 57 years later, and he said no. And, you know, we kind of had this conversation about, you know, just thinking about at that time, you know, people told him, well, let's just wait. Let's wait until this time to push for this, or let's get this part, and then we'll do this two years later. And, you know, his response often was like, no, we are going to push full steam ahead. We're going to get what we deserve. And I think fast forward to 2020, when you're talking about some of these younger folks that are millions that are protesting in the streets that are demanding change, the movement for Black lives, I think they feel that way too. When is a good time to, to demand for change in my community? When it's never a good time to have this uncomfortable conversation. And I think that when you're looking at these younger generations, that, that feeling is amongst so many of them. And I think that it's going to be very hard for the Democratic Party moving forward to ignore these people if they really want to continue to have uh, such a significant amount of Black support. They're going to have to develop some more progressive you know, policies. They're going to have to uh, respond to these demands. I know the uh, Patrice Cullors, who co-founded uh, Black Lives Matter movement, you know, they, they sent uh, a list of demands to Biden already. And they told me, you know, they are not stopping. The protest does not stop. He is just a new opponent. He is someone that they're going to push and push and push. And I think that that's really key here. Is that the black agenda that I saw that's, um, that she, did she put, 
didn't she publish an agenda or I think yeah so you know they have their thing with Patrice Cullors for the the Black Lives Matter but then there's the movement for Black Lives you know they're they're all pushing for the Breathe Act they're pushing for various measures to not just address criminal justice reform but like economic things you know housing all of these issues that tend to affect us so going back to my point you know when I've talked to some of these voters who are like what's changed among under any of these presidents I think the party is really going to have to have a hard look at itself and figure out what role has it played in some of these cities that that are still struggling and I think that that is it's not just about criminal justice reform it's not just about police killing us it's the it's the whole picture I mean, look at Detroit, we have all of these issues. 30 plus percent of our, our population live in poverty. 40 plus percent of our children live in poverty. When will that get addressed? Right. So I saw the agenda Black to the Future and I thought it was really, really well done. Um, but I shared with a few people, a few people looked at it, but it's like, we have it here, but we're not sharing with everybody. I'm wondering. Go ahead, Donna. I'm sorry. Oh, no, go on. Uh, it just to add to that, I'm wondering is it too late to talk about and talk strategy around transition team appointees as well as appointees uh, when uh, Joe Biden becomes president? Because unless you have folks who have done this work on the ground, some, somewhere in the cabinet, somewhere within the at man pushing, poking and prodding and reminding these folks how much they owe to the black community. And our, our issues are diverse. It's not relegated just to crime and, and, and poverty, right? Uh, but um, how, where, does the, where does the advocacy come in for that? Is it too late to be talking to uh, the Biden uh, campaign about appointees. Brandon Snyder needs to be on the transition team. Brandon Snyder needs to be, I'm serious. Like he needs to be talking to, to, to the administration. Um, it, where is Stacey Abrams gonna land? I mean, we're, I'm talking black appointees, both on transition and in cabinet and in other special assistant. Uh, com, I'm talking about commissions and, uh, uh, and boards and and all of that, all of that needs to dramatically shift because when we when we even look at the legislature, the House and the Senate, and we look at most of these appointees, they don't look like us. They don't look like pe people of color. Period. And it's just a huge despair, a glaring disparity that I see, and that I don't often hear us talking about when we when we get when we win the election, I'm like, okay, what's the strategy? What's the transition strategy? Who are we advocating to be on this transition team and where? And what does the special assistants, the cabinet and the commissions and all of that uh, look like for us? Well, you know, I think that there are lists. I think that when Biden wants to know who to put on his transition team and his cabinet from Michigan, he'll go to Doug and or Whitmer and say, who has been vetted in your community? And they will send a vetted, political person to, to represent. And I think the problem with the Brandon Snyders and others like him in this world is that they're unvetted. They are even unvettable, like, you know, cause you're vetting their social media accounts to make sure they never said anything wrong. And you're vetting their relationships to make sure they don't embarrass you. And by the time you get done, you end up only 
rep replicating what you already have? Well, I think that right now we're getting a glimpse of what, what their strategy is going to be. And right now I'm kind of the like, wait and see person. You know, I feel like when media first announced that he was president-elect, immediately on my timeline, it was like, all right, bump that next. Who are the cabinet appointees? Who is he gonna, what's he going to do next? And we've seen articles come out from both, you know, not both, but like all sides and groups and factions of the Democratic Party in the last like five days over the direction of the party. But He's announced the task force on coronavirus. So I'm looking to see who he's selecting for that. And I'm also looking to see just what his rhetoric is and how he's speaking toward things. Because right now the Biden administration has a decision to make. They know who the players are. They've seen how their voting base is vocalizing who they want to support. They're seeing what the backlash is anytime someone tries to minimize the votes of black people and the impact. I mean, Eva Longoria found that out the hard way on Sunday. <laughs> she put both of her feet in her mouth and then turned around and did not apologize and then still kind of didn't apologize. But Kerry Washington took up for her, so I guess she's okay. But you know, I think that they're seeing that going forward. It's going to be on organizers to now, you know, shift our priorities to canvassing people to make sure that we're looking to see how people are voting on things, looking to see what decisions people are making, because the same way that, you know, with the Trump administration, there's such, you know, a flaming garbage can that media report every mess up they make because they're constantly just doing things that make no sense um, or that are just like glaringly illegal, right? But we have the opportunity to now protest against things like that use our voices to make sure that we keep the same pressure on our representatives and the people that they've appointed as we did on the GOP. Because as long as we don't, or as long as we do continue to use our voice in that way, I think that the Democratic Party will have to, will respond in some way, or if not, then they'll just look really bad and that'll be on them, you know. Anna, you bring up an important point to me, this vetting process, and it's something that I hadn't thought about, making sure that that people are vetted. And I think that's why we often see just, you know, circular almost administrations in, in Washington um, and the reuse of folks from past administrations coming back and not a lot of, not a lot of new blood. And when you have powerful people appointing people to power, it just, huh, I don't know, but it, it it's, uh, it's like there's so many ways that we could chip away at this and start is like how do we just redo all of this i have i have released i've shared with you guys the names on the transition team that they have announced um mm -hmm. see look at all the grassroots names okay that's all i'm saying is that <laughs> um, the grassroots and in some ways i think it's better for us not to be in those corridors because i think mm -hmm. uh, Unfortunately, sometimes when you get inside of there, you start breathing the wrong air. It's kind of what Camille was talking about earlier about when people start off with a good intention, but you end up, Lani Guineer talked about this in the Miner's Canary, how people get appointed to certain spaces. And unless they have strong accountability and connections to the community, they change. The spaces don't change, but they do. And so I think if we really want to um, really make change inside the party. We've got to organize outside the party and then push in to a certain extent and build our organization. That's the reason why um, the Black to the Future agenda is really important to me because 
if not this one, some agenda that links people across this nation so we can take some issues and continue working collectively on um, our shared black agenda, which we don't have right now. I don't think we don't have lobbyists that are really focusing on a black progressive agenda right now. And I think we need them. I think we need to invest money in those lobbyists so they can start putting money in campaigns because that's how things change in America. And mm. oh, anyway. Uh, how do you, how serious, Kat, how serious should we be taking um, Donald Trump's refusal to concede uh, this election? And we're seeing that he, the Attorney General Bill Barr has instructed U.S. attorneys to look into voter fraud. We saw Secretary of State Mike Pompeo talking about there would be a smooth transition of power uh, to another Trump presidential administration, um, even just the physical building of a wall um, around the White House House and the refusal, I'm sorry, to fund the Biden-Harris transition, right? Um, how serious do we need to be taking uh, this? Well, I think it's, it's, it's really concerning to see that happening, right? And I think a lot of people uh, right now are, are kind of scared by it, but I think that Joe Biden is our president-elect and I don't know what a Donald Trump can do to circumvent that or prevent that from happening, that transfer of power from happening come January 20th. But what I do think this does is again, I think it creates this, this climate of uh, suspicion. They're, they're some people believe they're trying to create a, a, a suspicious cloud that will hang over Joe Biden's presidency, right? That he did not uh, get this fair and square. And I think that's very dangerous for the electorate and the fact that going back to my earlier point, we know that Donald Trump has a lot of supporters, right? A lot of supporters. And so they're going to believe that. And I think that's going to be a challenge for, for Trump. But I think that the greater challenge I think is for the media to not both sides this issue. We need to be reporting it clear. Mm -hmm. We need to be stating it what it is. And every time uh, a Pompeo or someone along those lines says something like this, we need to state what the facts are because we should be discerning that and making it clear for readers and for the public. And I think that that's gonna be crucial. Do you think they've been doing that so far? You know, I, I think, you know, AP internally, we've been talking about how every time we have a story along these lines on this issue, we have boilerplate language that we are going to place in every single story that says this is not fact, this is what it is. And I think every media outlet should be doing that. Am I seeing that? No. I think it's potentially harmful when we have these outlets that are just tweeting what someone is saying without having that context. You know, I'm a big fan of Yamiche. I think she does that well. We call it like the sandwich method where Trump says something, she says what he says, but then she has the fact, like at the end of it, no, this is false. And I think we have to do that more. I mean, this is serious. I, I just... Have you heard of the Parler social media network? No. Where all the Republicans are going? So they started no. their own social media network. It says it's the Parler, um, it's the Parler free speech social network. So I decided to join yesterday so I can look and see what they're talking about. I want to tell you how hard it is to join the social media network. I mean, they have so many security protocols in there and they kept kicking me out, but finally I was in. And then they said that the page was suspended. So I think 
the other thing that we may want to make sure of is that we have people who are watching what they're posting there. And I watched it for a few hours yesterday and it was just stupid, but I may not be in all of the rooms. Um, I, I encourage everybody to get a parlor account, P-A-R-L-E-R. If you, if you have the stomach for it, I just feel as though they're trying to run and hide and we shouldn't let them. So they may kick me out because I don't know if they are, I don't know how they did it, but all I know is I couldn't make it past security for like half an hour. Misinformation mm. is such a huge issue. And I, I unfortunately don't think it's going to, to go away. And, you know, I've seen some stories say that uh, Donald Trump will concede at some point, but he's already trying to develop a path, potentially do another run in 2024. So it's a lot to pay attention to. <laughs> I'll say that before I get myself in trouble. <laughs> How dangerous is it though, to I think the, the safety of Americans to have energized, uh, in many cases, ma militia groups uh, by who are energized by this rhetoric, who are energized by these claims of voter fraud and the fact that uh, you have a Senate majority leader in the person of Mitch McConnell who supports uh, these voter fraud claims, an attorney general and a secretary of state. I mean, are, will we see like chaos in the streets? I mean, Camille, like I'm, I'm, I'm a little uneasy about this. I got to tell you because I've, I've never seen anything like it. I've just, I've never seen it. I mean, I think it's important for us to remember that like number one, misinformation is a bedrock of white supremacy because to them, it's not in misinformation, it's fact. And the misinformation that they trade in is almost always just rooted in racist stereotypes. It's cheating because black people did it and black people voting period is cheating because we shouldn't be able to vote. The stuff that they're doing and the tactics they're using are straight out of the Civil Rights Jim Crow era handbook when they were trying to violently suppress votes, when they were trying to find any way to throw out Black votes and stop Black power. And so I think it's really dangerous, but I think that what we're seeing right now is white supremacists trying to reassert their power in public again. When they say make America great again, what they mean is make it so that we can do whatever we want with no consequence again because you know it's oh well, i like the blacks and i like the blank and i like the this and that um and what they want back is power what they want back is the ability to do whatever they want and even the whole voter fraud thing it's a strategy um and there was an article that actually came out today that talked about how a lot of the junior lawyers at the firms that are representing him um, in washington and in a few other states are going to reporters and talking about how they feel like what they're doing is wrong and unconscionable because these lawsuits are not based in facts. You know, he has the one that he had someone file in Detroit, but they're filing them everywhere and the courts are coming back and saying, yeah, actually dismissed because they're not even filing evidence. They're not filing the required affidavits. They're not filing the required paperwork, anything, but it's a purposeful attempt to undermine public confidence 
in the election, in voting here, period, you see Lindsey Graham complaining about the fact that if we don't stop mail-in voting, we'll never win again, because the real tea is that people don't like them. And unfortunately, we figured out how they're doing their voter suppression, and we figured a way around it. And the one thing that COVID-19 provided through their piss poor leadership and purposeful poisoning of poor and black and brown people in this country is that we can mobilize people to do mail-in voting and to vote and we can get people out when they are accommodated and when we accommodate people's civil rights the same way we do people's disabilities. And so they are losing their minds. They're losing their grip and they don't know what to do about it. And yeah, it's all hard. purposeful. And, well, but I do think that they're gonna react violently because they're threatening it. And I like to take threats from crazy people seriously because this is their worst case scenario. And they're like toddlers that have had something taken away from them. They're throwing a temper tantrum. And what scares me is that they were coming to places armed in other states. Like in Arizona, they were out there with guns. They had to send poll workers home. They did that in Philly. Some people, first of all, they threatened a race war, some like pundits. And then they came there, they found like an armed Hummer that was filled with like 40,000 fake ballots and guns up to the wazoo. And it was a white militia group. Um, and it was I don't think on the Department of Elections building on Friday. Yeah, and I think that because the Democratic Party doesn't wanna tackle anti-racism, we wanna talk about freaking healing. Like you can heal or reconcile racists with the people that they want to genocide. Like they would literally rather pretend that didn't happen and we're back to normal. We have no strategy to deal with these people when they lose it. We, what are we going to choose? The police who are out here beating Americans every week still and that was, for protesting that was and beating them? I'll tell you what prompted my question. My, uh, I have a relative who was out in Macomb County at a Walmart um, Wednesday. It was either Tuesday night or Wednesday night. And he texted uh, in the family chat box that some white man pulled out a gun on him in the Walmart parking lot, pulled a gun out on him in the Walmart parking lot because he didn't like the way he was driving. He didn't like the way my relative was driving. And my relative was reluctant and he did not. He did not call the police in Macomb County to come and investigate what happened. He did not feel safe calling the authorities on this random white guy who pulled out a semi-automatic weapon on him. And so I'm just wondering, like, because, because of what we're hearing and because of what we're seeing, are there more instances uh, like that that are going to be popping up all over the place? What are we to do? You know what I mean? Like, where do we go well, from here? Let me say this. Um, just the FBI has been infiltrating these groups. They have named white nationalists as the biggest threat to peace in America. They've already arrested people who were plotting to um, to kidnap, kidnap Governor Moore. Whitmer. And there was another person who was recruiting white nationalists. So I don't think that the FBI is above trying to stop out and out violence and terror from these groups. Although I do understand that some of these FBI, the FBI has also been infiltrated and police departments have been infiltrated. But I do believe also that there are systems in place. I think that what the Trump administration and these people want to do is they want to impose fear. They want us to be afraid. 
And I guess I understand that there is a realistic fear that people have. I'm not going certain places. I'll be honest, the green book is real. Somebody pointed out the electoral map and that is my green book. I'm staying home. I can shop in black places and get my needs met. Okay, so I'm going to stay home for a minute. I'm not going to certain places. If I have to drive to Southfield to go get something that I could also easily get in Roseville, no problem. But I do wanna say that I think it's important that we rise to a certain level, understand that they're that this is what bullies do. They come at you and they wave their guns. And they want you to cower in fear. And they want to take the joy away. They wanna take the sense of power away. Look, we can do all of this. And I hope that we also retain a sense of calm and dignity and purpose that these people are weak. And ultimately they may have guns, but they are weak. They lost and we won. And no matter how we got to that victory, we won. I also want to um, encourage people because you know, it would not be me without dropping a book. Um, so I was reading this book and I thought it was so great. It's called, um, what is it called? It's called The Abolition of White Democracy written by Joel Olson in 2004. And he really speaks to um, 16 years before now, the white electorate, the mindset of the whiteness wages and the wages of whiteness that people have that get taken away. I think that when I see people post things like, well, all we want is equality. We're not trying to take anything away from white people. Why can't they let us have that? They don't understand how whiteness works. Whiteness means that there's not equality. Whiteness is inherently unequal. And if you are equal to me, then you're taking away my sense of power and dominance over you. So we've got to really start trying to do a better job understanding the motivations here and then understand how to counter some of those motivations with our own intentional acts. So this author goes back and does a great job of quoting um, Du Bois and really bringing forth some of the things that you don't read about from him, not just the veil, but also some other things. So I, I encourage you reading it because it really did help me think through what I think is happening now. But what I hope everybody understands is that bullies thrive on your fear. And having, you know, been around bullies much of my life, I had to learn how to not evoke that, even if I'm feeling that. So <laughs> that's good. Uh, we're, we're coming up on time. And so last question for the panel tonight is, where do we go from here? Kat, we'll start with you. So I kind of want to pick off on the, the, the thought about, uh, white Americans and white voters. You know, I've done a lot of reporting around that. And I've been talking with this one expert out of, um, and she's at Duke. And, and we talked a lot about how in 2016, a lot of people said that they were voting for Donald Trump because he was promising to bring back manufacturing jobs. You know, he was gonna give them a, a path forward. But one of the things we talked about, uh, you know, she pretty much said that there's a large number of Americans that were one, willing to turn a blind eye to racism and two, they outright uh, support his racist rhetoric and his ideas. And until we again reckon with that, I feel like we're talking in circles. Um, someone that I recently talked about, we were talking about this idea of America exceptionalism. Americans pride themselves on being exceptional, right? But structural racism flies in the face of that. How can we be exceptional when we still have so many people in poverty when we are living next to these uh, poisonous facilities. I just think that, you know, I don't mean to be doom and gloom, but I just think that until America really addresses 
how deeply embedded, deeply rooted racism is in this country, we're not solving anything. Right. Camille, where do we go from here? Well, I don't think I can say it better than that because that's, I mean, exactly where I'm at. And I don't know, it's like we have a long ways to go and it's tiring to think about. One thing that I am just interested to see, um, you know, I have been doing a lot of, you know, just looking at the data around which, you know, Democrats won seats and, you know, I could complain about the establishment for days, but I won't, but you know, they talk about how the issue is the left and they're losing us seats. But when you look at the data, the left was actually winning seats and holding on to their seats by and large for the most part, while people that were trying to tell the line of the center were the ones that were losing their seats. And so what I'm really interested in is to see like the demographics of those districts and what comes out of that and um, how groups like Justice Dems and just grassroots organizers that again were just like really the bad, the bed rock and the you know, backbone of this whole thing, like how they use that to continue to empower people and build these voices. Um, because at least for myself, I feel like it's super tiring to try to figure out how to change that the party that supports my rights the most, I guess, from the inside. Um, but it is really inspiring to see how people are still continuing to use the power that we have and the small but mighty resources that we do have to continue to flip these districts in a way that is kind of forcing them to change their stances, even if they don't want to. You know, I don't think any of us thought that the squad and any of the other justice Dems that are in Congress right now were going to get some of the appointments that they got the impacts that they've made and if nothing else they've shown how impotent, impotent our party is right but I think they've also inspired people and inspired a lot of disaffected voters and that's why you saw people getting out especially when the, they were people that were plugged into that piece of like the movement and so yeah I'm just really excited to see how we continue that momentum through this hellacious hellscape that we're in right now. <laughs> Y'all, can I say one last thing? I'm sorry. Yes. I, I want to say something positive because I'm so negative sometimes. <laughs> the one thing that I think is encouraging that I, that I have enjoyed seeing is all of the little girls, Black girls, Black women who feel encouraged by Senator, now Vice President-elect Harris. And we could talk about her previous policies. We could talk about all of that. And I think that's a necessary conversation. But you know, I've talked to mothers of little girls who, when they saw her on that stage, they ran into their room, found their white dress, came back out and were watching her speak. And that's touching. And, and to have a woman in that spot for a lot of women lets these little girls know that they too can, can be what they want. And I think what that represents is that, that glass ceiling shattering and hopefully uh, potential to come for so many little black girls across the country. So I just wanted to say that. I want to thank you for that, Kat. As a black woman who is about her age, who grew up in a society that treated me like I was less than every white woman, um, who went to Mercy High School and had teachers tone police me and shut me up because people were uncomfortable with my voice, who had students not speak to me because they didn't want to be around a black girl, who went to U of M and was told, you don't belong here. And um, one student got mad at me and told my book, accused my, went to my professor and said, she tries to be so smart. 
as a black woman who has had white people try to keep me in my place my entire life. As a black woman who had white women and girls trying to keep me in my place my entire life. The fact that the first woman vice president was black. I have to be honest with you. The fact that we got there first, the fact that black women exceptionalism, the strength and whatever it is that we have to acquire in order to move forward in life. Um, I was in tears and um, it was gratifying to me because, um, and I said to my mother who was 87 years old, I said, mommy, did you ever imagine that a black woman would be a vice president? And my mother started crying. So um, for black women everywhere, I'm not letting anybody take that away from us. No, she's not perfect, but there is nobody who's ever been in the vice presidency who has been perfect, which she is, is an intelligent black woman. She graduated from an HBCU. She is the right. person to occupy that space who is post baby boom, just by one year. Yeah. But she is post baby boom, the first person to ever occupy that space who's post baby boom. She's so many firsts and I am just so excited about the reality of who she is and the symbolism of what that means and a belief that her true connections to black people when she was at Howard University and her friendships and her, the fact that she's an AKA will cement her in some centered sense of blackness that would not happen with a white man or a white woman in that space. What a way to put a button on that. Thank you so much, guys. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Authentically Detroit, or email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. It's time for shout outs. Anybody got shout outs, Donna, you have shout outs? Um, yes, I do want to shout out Detroit Disability Power um, for funding us to hire um, outreach workers. We hire 11 outreach workers to go out there and um, actually distribute literature and spoke to 10,000 voters. Um, five of our outreach workers were young people in our community and six were adults. So um, thank you Detroit Disability Power, which worked with um, Brandon Snyder's Detroit Action to make that happen. I wanna shout out my friend, Diane Hutcherson, who was there making it happen, um, as well as all of the other women. I know you have a long list of them, so I'm just shouting Diane out separately because um, she is my friend. And um, she was, you know, she really did what she had to do. I want to shout out Jadana Matthews Dingus for being my anger translator because this woman is laying it down on Facebook. I love her. She actually has a shop, Margo and Max in Ferndale. She's an amazing upscale resale um, um, proprietor. But I'm telling you, she has just been great. And I think that we need people to keep us lifted in our um, thinking. And then also shout out Rachel Lutz and Nett Stabler, who also were at the polls um, trying to do their due. Yeah, I want to shout out uh, Daniel Baxter. Daniel Baxter was clearly uh, running things at the Central Accounting Board and doing so with a level head and integrity while still maintaining uh, his continence um, in spite of all that was going on. Every single poll worker that I saw uh, working at TCF uh, Summer Woods, who got a nod in the New York Times, uh, Anika Goss and Jennifer Smith, Candace Fortman, all these Black women, Khalila Burt Gaskin, Gatson, sorry, Valencia Moby, Lydia Jones, and you know everybody who was down there at TCF uh, around the clock, making sure that democracy had fidelity. Um, 
uh, New Area Detroit, who uh, was able to turn and switch ownership of that gas station where uh, that young man was killed to black ownership. Shout out to Zeke at New Area Detroit. We want to shout out uh, Dewan Dandrist of Black Leaders Detroit, who has a fund who will be granting uh, small black businesses uh, up to $5,000 um, in, in grants and in grant funding. And uh, he wants to get that word out. So shout out to him and uh, Stacey Abrams and everybody who um, contributed uh, to the results of last week and who are helping to tell the story. Shout out to Olivia Lewis at Bridge Detroit who released a magnificent profile on five uh, black women um, who worked the polls in Detroit uh, last week. So Camille, Kat, any shout outs? I wanna shout out black journalists who have spent the past several months covering what personally for me has been like the toughest things to ever cover, the pandemic, which is killing our people, joblessness, all of this stuff. So I wanna shout out all the black journalists who are putting in the work to make, make sure that our stories are told and that our voices are heard and that we're uplifting the folks that are in these communities doing, doing the real work. So shout out to every black journalist out there, including you. <laughs> including you too, Kat. Camille, any shout outs? <laughs> Um, I'm gonna shout out Black Twitter, actually. You know, people <laughs> like to talk all this crap about, you know, internet activism, this, that, and the third, but throughout this entire election season, so many of the things that we saw as far as policy, as far as strategy, as far as freaking sound bites and everything else could be attributed to things that started on Black Twitter, movements that started on Black Twitter, conversations that started on Black Twitter, you know, people can try to minimize the effect that basically digital Black organizing has because that's what it is. And I think the same way that Eva Longoria tried to minimize Black women being heroines in this election, a lot of times the media and people in power who are criticized by Black people on Twitter try to minimize the effect and the impact of Black people on this platform and the way that Black people have really used this platform to educate each other, to activate each other, to mobilize each other, to share information and make sure that people can read through misinformation because we know Facebook is a cesspool. And sure there's misinformation on Black Twitter, but our FBI agents will come out and knock that misinformation down and make sure that the good people are out here equipped and ready. Black Twitter FBI. <laughs> yes, and that we hold people accountable. And I think that it's something that has really empowered, again, voters that have felt disaffected to feel like their voices are being heard or like their, you know, criticism has an impact. It up until now has been the easiest way for us to hold people accountable. If we didn't have the internet and we weren't able to communicate how we felt so quickly, I don't think that we would see the responses from people in power in the way that we do now. That's why Donald Trump's having a meltdown in public. Um, but I just want overused his power on that platform. Camille is a vanguard for Black Twitter. She is a general, okay, for Black Twitter. Uh, you got to follow her. Also, uh, really quickly, I uh, so thankful for Kat. Kat will be appearing next week in the Urban Consulate talk on racial equity 
with uh, Phil Lewis from the Huffington Post, who's the front page editor of the Huffington Post, talking about racial equity within the journalism sector. So I just want to give Kat another shout out and shout out that event. Make sure you tune in for that. Thank you so much, Camille and Kat, for joining us today. We thank you for listening, and we want you to catch the wave.